Welcome to the 3D Players Podcast, where we explore personalization in healthcare through advancements in 3D technology. We'll talk to leaders championing more predictable and sustainable patient care. I'm Peter Slagmolen, and I'm joined by my co-host, Sebastian de Vogt. Hey, Sebastian. Hi there. Our guest today is Tom de Paat. Uh, Tom is the head of radiation physics at the University Hospital in Leuven. And we'll take the opportunity to talk about mass personalization in radiotherapy. Now, regular listeners of our podcast may find this a surprising twist in topics, but radiotherapy is one of the foundations of cancer treatment, and this is for us a very inspiring field that we are eager to dive into. In Europe, cancer is the number one cause of death, hitting approximately one in four people, so chances are that every one of our listeners knows somebody who is suffering, has suffered, or has died from cancer. The thought of learning how 3D technology and specifically maybe 3D printing can help cancer treatment is rather exciting for us. Tom, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here with us today. Thank you, Peter. The pleasure is mutual. Maybe for the people who are less familiar in our audience, can you start by explaining what radiotherapy is actually all about? Well, you already mentioned that uh, it plays an important role in, in the treatment of cancer. And, and indeed, um, a little bit more than half of the patients um, facing cancer treatment will have uh, radiation therapy uh, in their uh, treatment at some point. Uh, so it's an important, plays an important role in, in, in the cur- curation of cancer. Um, so what do we do? We use, uh, as the name uh, says, okay, we use radiation, we use uh, beams, uh, radiation beams of uh, ionizing radiation to treat cancer. This is our agent, this is what we work with, and uh, what we try to do is to uh, expose the tumor uh, to a high level of radiation dose, to damages, to uh, eradicate it, uh, but you know that ionizing radiation causes some damage. So our goal, and certainly medical physics, uh, that's my specific profession, uh, deals with uh, the fact that we want to give the tumor a very high dose, but the surrounding healthy tissue a a very low dose. And that's all the techniques, technology that involve that, from imaging to treatment uh, delivery technology, um, has that goal. And a lot of research, a lot of developments the last uh, the last uh, 40, 50 years, have this goal uh, to reduce uh, the uh, exposure of surrounding tissues, of healthy tissues, of certain critical sensitive structures in the body. Now, Tom, you are leading a team of physicists, uh, not physicians. Um, it seems a significant outlier in, in the medical field uh, to have a technical team so directly involved uh, in the patient treatment. Uh, what is your role exactly as, as a physicist in the day-to-day radiotherapy world? In radiation oncology, we have a shared responsibility. Yeah? So you have the physician, uh, the medical doctor who follows up the patient, um, is involved in the diagnosis, but also uh, in, in a way delineates uh, where the disease is, what is the uh, affected tissue and, uh, and the surrounding tissues uh, determines the sensitive structures around that volume and then uh, prescribes a certain dose and that depends on certain protocols, on on knowledge, eh, on on clinical studies where they determine that, okay, certain cancer types need a certain amount of dose. And then uh, we come into play. Uh, So the medical physicist, what do we do? We we have a few aspects. We um, manage the equipment, so the, the entire life cycle of the equipment. So when it comes in, when it's installed, 
we accept it, we commission it, and we keep it uh, a lot, not only alive, but also keep the quality of the machine uh, up to the standards that are required to do treatment. And the other uh, aspect is that for and definitely in uh, radiation oncology, we play a role for every individual patient. Uh, we are involved in their treatment because uh, my team um, creates the treatment plans, de designs the treatment plan that are very specific, uh, customized to each individual patient. We create these treatment plans. Um, and that happens in a, yeah, in a digital world. We create kind of a digital twin of the patient based on CT images. Nowadays, CT is the backbone of that digital twin. And in that uh, environment, the digital environment, we can simulate the treatment beams, eh? so the interaction with the body. We can all simulate that. We have models of our treatment units and uh, the development of these uh, models. That's also our responsibility. Um, and in this environment, we can basically create the treatment. Uh, and that treatment is then sent to the linear accelerators, proton therapy, or uh, HDR afterloaders for brachytherapy and is then delivered to the patient. But the actual, uh, the, the computational process to develop these treatments, because they're very complicated, they have thousands of parameters, so it's not a manual process, it's, it's, it's fully automated nowadays or automated up to a high level. That's our responsibility. All right, uh, it sounds very, very interesting and complicated. Now we're very familiar with personalization on surgical applications, and I think that's most of our episodes so far have revolved around, but uh, to a lesser extent, we're familiar with personalization in radiotherapy. We already briefly touched upon uh, some of the parts where you're involved in. Now, why is personalization you know, important in radiotherapy, and what are some of the specifics that really need personalization in radiotherapy? So as I already explained, it, it is already highly personalized. Already now, the, the treatment itself is custom built for the patient. And that uh, relates to how the treatment uh, systems deliver treatment. But okay, we have the digital model and you can extend that customization now and personalization. Also certain devices that we require to perform the treatment can be customized as well, can be personalized. That already happens up to some level with certain thermoplastic sheets, for example, that are molded around the patient, certain cushioning and, and um, vacuum cushions, for example, that are personalized. But now we see the evolution towards 3D printing as a technique to make these personalized uh, devices that help in treatment. Eh? That's the evolution that is ongoing uh, right now, I would say. And that's the next step uh, in a way. But today, if I understand it correctly, for our audience, the personalization is, is already happening by basically tweaking how the treatment machines behave in relation to the patient, right? That's what happens when you talk about treatment planning and, and how it will be brought to the patient. Exactly. So we, we are already highly personalized. Not, also, not, not only do we take into account the specific anatomy of the patient and the, the target volume, the surrounding structures. But we also take into account breathing motion, for example, that is also very specific to a patient. So the, if we have moving tumors, we also take that into account. So you see, the, we, we, we use as much information about the patient as we can. And we build that into this digital twin and then we create um, the treatment planning uh, specifically for that patient. Yeah. It does feel like a a very resource intensive approach. Uh, can you illustrate kind of how many people are then involved in treating a patient? How much effort is being spent in preparing all of this uh, for an individual patient? 
Well, for an individual patient, well, you need from the uh, the CT scan, which is, as I already mentioned, like the backbone of this, this patient model, the digital twin, until we start treatment, you have to count that's one to two weeks, depending on the complexity. And uh, you have uh, you have some segmentation of, of anatomy, and, and nowadays, okay, there's a lot going on with, with artificial intelligence to, to speed that up, uh, to make that easier, more consistent even. Uh, and then the treatment planning process itself, okay, it's not a manual process. Uh, we have a lot of technology that helps us there. Already some machine learning and AI is, is also finding its way to that part of the process uh, to, to make that speedier and, and, and maybe increase quality even. But that process takes, takes some time. It can go from an hour to a few hours to maybe a few days to create a treatment plan that is patient-specific. Uh, so that depends on the complexity. Uh, and then there's a part where we do quality assurance, quality control for each individual treatment plan. And there uh, we strive towards uh, automation as well. Things should go more automatic rather than manual and trying to avoid more the experimental uh, validation of things and more go to computational uh, validation of these treatment plans. But indeed, okay, it's labor intensive, yes, but uh, we do see that technology helps us there and that will uh, further increase uh, the coming years. Yeah, I think it's, um, I mean, you, you touched on a number of things that we're looking at as well, eh? because indeed what we're trying to do is make, well, at least the conversation that we're trying to have is how do we make personalization more scalable in a way. We are also seeing on the surgical side that, yeah, technologies like AI, for example, are definitely going to help there. The way you introduce it, that's also one of the aspects that you're using is automation on the software level. Are there other things that are being done in the radiotherapy field that maybe make radiotherapy as a whole more scalable? Well, we have that patient model and the digital twin, and we are injecting as much information as we have. We started off using no CT imaging, and now we use CT imaging. We, we, we go beyond that. So more and more information is put in there, and, and also more knowledge on biology. Uh, this AI will be trained with biology as well. Now I'm going a bit out of my expertise, but that's where I anticipated it will go. Eh? Uh, that's... It's it's logical. That's the AI, and maybe that's not the discussion you want to have today. But <laughs> AI will 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 use all the information that is available to to make a good decision. So that patient model, that digital twin, will become richer and richer and richer, um, and and in that way will uh, support uh, automated treatment and and decision making. <laughs> I would like to take it back as well to the 3D printing uh, and go a little bit deeper into that and, and maybe just taking a step back because I'm kind of a novice in the field and my colleague Peter here is, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of his background. For me, I'm, I'm stepping into this quite new. You talked about certain devices where you use thermoplastics and now looking into 3D printing. What's the role of those devices actually in, in, in the treatment? Why are they needed? Well, let me maybe first give you a small overview of what is done with 3D printing nowadays in, in radiation oncology, and then I'll get into more detail. So 3D printing is available in radiation oncology. A lot of centers buy 3D printers, have them on site, but what is done with it, that varies over the different sites. So it's, it's used for phantoms and what we call phantoms that are devices that we create to do, for example, experimental dosimetry, 
and we can create our own phantoms now. Eh? We can develop, design the shape ourselves. Eh? Depending on the experiment that you do, you design, in fact, a specific experiment. You can print it, uh, use it, and so that gives a lot of freedom. Certain people use it to print even the geometry of the patient and validate the treatment in the geometry of the patient that is printed. So the shape of the phantom, the phantom gets the shape of the patient and the treatment is validated in these circumstances. So you're basically copy-pasting the patient, right? Exactly, yes. Uh, And we can do dosimetry in that object uh, and in this way validate the treatment uh, before we we deliver it. Okay, that's one use. Then in brachytherapy, there are also a lot of uh, applications. What we do there, for Maybe, example... Sorry, Tom, yeah. for clarification for people not familiar, can you explain what brachytherapy is? Yeah. So brachytherapy is where we uh, bring in radioactive sources close or in the tumor itself. Uh, you can imagine if you want to avoid surrounding structures and you can bring the radiation source inside the tumor, that's a big advantage yeah? because you treat the tumor from inside. It's also used for superficial uh, lesions, um, skin lesions, etc. And that's where there are a lot of applications with 3D printing where because uh, you want to bring these sources close to the patient in certain uh, ducts and you have to place these ducts exactly at the same position, at the right position uh, on the skin. And for example, if you have treatment of the nose, uh, it's very interesting to print a device that shapes around that local anatomy. Uh, where you have these ducts where you bring in these sources. Uh, so you, you can imagine that 3D printing there is, is a real advantage. We use it also in, in UZ Leuven, and, and that's an application that is used in a lot of brachytherapy uh, sites. Some people look into other uh, sites for brachytherapy as well. Uh, concept is the same, but there uh, the device is brought into the patient uh, in intracavitary uh, treatments, uh, for example. But that's under development. Uh, it's a lot more complicated as you bring in uh, these devices into the patient. And then another application is bolus, so external beam. uh, And it's practically similar to what I explained with the nose. So we have certain complicated anatomy and we can place material on top of it. Uh, We do that because with megavolt beams, the highest dose is not delivered at the surface, but at a certain depth of a few centimeters. But for some indications, we want to pull the dose towards the surface. And that we do by putting some material on top of the skin. But in some parts of the body, it's very hard to have like a generic bolus. So if we can print it uh, with, uh, based on the CT scan, where it's patient-specific and really is shaped uh, around the anatomy of the patient, uh, we get a much better quality. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, that's another application. So D3 applications are the main applications nowadays. And yeah, we use these uh, routinely already. And a lot of hospitals have invested in that. And are those, like, where are they now in, in terms of maturity of, of using 3D printing? Is everybody, all the centers still kind of figuring things out themselves in more of a DIY yep. approach, I guess, yet, you know, of course, a professional approach, but creating things yourself? Or, or is there already more established products that are a bit more boxed in that, that, you're, that you have available? There's beginning to come some commercial interest at the moment, but it is fairly limited still also how these are produced. I think hospitals and industry are still looking for ways to collaborate. Uh, we have today also the, uh, the famous uh, MDR, <laughs> yes. uh, the medical device regulation that plays a role there as well and will have an impact on how we organize ourselves in the future. Uh, but what is sure, and I'm pretty sure about that, it will be a collaboration between hospitals and industry. That's obvious. And this 
approach will make it possible to roll out 3D printing technology in radiation oncology in, in a much broader way. And that's necessary because, okay, the, the way it goes, these things are used. If you look in literature, they are used, but on small cohorts, not the large clinical studies. And to really prove that they have an advantage, you need a huge amount of patients and, and larger studies. And to prove that, that's the way medicine goes. Yeah, so it, it should be evidence-based. And I think at the moment, it's not enough available to be able to do that. One thing that I, I wanted to ask as follow-up on your applications, maybe for the people in the audience who don't know that, I have history in radiotherapy myself, so I started my PhD with Tom uh, already 17 years ago in Leuven. And I remember the first week of my time there, um, a former head of oncology forced me, in a way, uh, to spend time with patients a full week, basically. I had to be part of uh, interviews with patients, also take part in the planning process and everything, so that when I was doing research, I could at least relate it to reality, which I found very interesting. But also, yeah, I could see that the technology at that point in time was not very mature yet. And I mean, in terms of uh, a lot of the planning was still being done in 2D, but also a lot of the devices that you describe now that were being used in treatment because these people were already treated with radiation therapy, right? So these devices were already required. They were manufactured maybe in a more archaic way at that point in time. Can you relate that, the reality of how these devices were made before to what 3D printing can do now in terms of efficiency, in terms of way of working? Well, one other example is patient immobilization. So we treat patients not in a single fraction. However, that is done as well, but usually you have multiple fractions, 20 to 30 fractions. And every time we need the patient to be in exactly the same position as in which was planned, the CT image basically. So that means you need certain devices that reproduce or help reproduce the position of the patient on a daily basis. It used to be done, and also at the time that you started, uh, we, we did it with thermoplastic masks. And these are devices that's a, a sheet of plastic. It's also a thermoplastic, eh? but it's also used in 3D printing, but in another form. We heat it up, and then we mold it around the patient. It cools down and it becomes hard, so you get a mold for the patient eh? that completely encompasses uh, the patient. That's a process that patients, well, don't find very comfortable. It's it's a bit claustrophobic. They have to wait for 20, uh, 25 minutes for it to cool down and to harden. And I've been in one of these masks <laughs> just to have the experience and to know what it is. And it's really, it is claustrophobic. And it, it shrinks a little bit. The, the process is not very, uh, patients are not, lo not looking forward to that. Uh, and also they have to get into this mask every time for each uh, individual fraction. So what we're looking into today and, and 3D printing is, I guess, an option. The, the freedom that you have with 3D printing is that you can create a device that instead of really encompassing the entire anatomy and squeeze it into a certain shape, you can really focus on the parts of the anatomy, for example, in the head and neck region that are really stable. And the nose bridge, certain other parts of that region, well, they're pretty stable and they're not really depending on weight loss of the patient, for example, or other things, and they're very stable. So you can, you can build a device that immobilizes the patient based on these specific features. And then it becomes a device that might be more open, less claustrophobic, and, well, for the patient, that's, that makes a big difference. And we've done a small study in the past. One of my students, David Michiels, 
did a small study, and again, it's a small cohort, but it already showed that there were some advantages, that patients were more comfortable in these devices in terms of immobilization quality, because that's, of course, also important. That they should be at least as good as the technology we used before. They gave similar results. So, and that's based on a very small study. So I know it's from a scientific point of view, not very valuable, but it shows that there is some promise in there and we should keep on working on that solution. So that's already a fourth application out of the three that you, you previously mentioned. And what's striking me is that they're very spread over. It's in a lot of different ways eh? um, as Phantom and then as you know, those fixation devices. Like looking at it from an industry point of view, is there any one of the four where you say, okay, like if we need to collaborate with industry or if there is a potentially a good fit for industry to really take this on and look at commercial opportunities, then that's the one of the four that I would see emerging first. Well, um, looking at, at what we're doing in, in Leuven, um, the, the, the example of brachytherapy that I mentioned and patient bolus, that's in my opinion a no-brainer where we should have solutions for that as soon as possible because they are used and it's certainly in brachytherapy, it's quite obvious that it's better than the solutions we had before. Uh, sometimes with well material that well if you if you have the device the 3d printed device then you cannot imagine that we we did it the way we did uh, in the past uh, so that's really uh, well obvious that that these kind of solutions should become available what is important in radiotherapy specifically that is combining the 3d printing with the clinical workflow and having it integrated in a way and that that's important because, okay, we have a certain workflow that, as I said, we have one to two weeks to prepare the treatment. And the production of this device that is patient-specific should perfectly fit into that workflow. And I think there, okay, from a commercial standpoint, that's where the gain is. There where we should create solutions because, okay, it also is connected to rolling it out in radiation oncology in a broader way. That you do not only have, like, academic sites with a lot of resources that... Uh, develop their own solutions, but that all hospitals uh, doing radiation oncology have these technology in-house and have the the software and the solutions available to use it for their patients. And that will play a big role. And, and when you say integration, how should I see it? Like, is it mostly on the software side that you're looking for a smooth way to go from your therapy planning then maybe to design to manufacturing? Or is it also the 3D printing itself that you feel needs to be inside the hospital or can it also be, happen outside? What's most critical when you say it needs to be more integrated? Yeah, well, let's start with the design. So I already explained a few times already. So the, the digital twin that we have, because that's really the core, and we do the development of this treatment in silico. So it's obvious that you create devices that are needed for that treatment together with the treatment planning. They should be combined. You should create a treatment plan. For example, immobilization, you should maybe... In some parts, introduce a certain bolus material. In some parts, maybe you should avoid that there is material that the device is created together with the treatment plan. Bolus material, brachytherapy, the same. Uh, it should be created with the treatment plan, and sometimes it becomes a treatment plan. For example, trajectories of these sources through these devices, well, they should be, in a way, created uh, in the treatment planning. You create the device together with the treatment plan. It's part of that process. So it's not, I don't, I hope that at some point it's integrated in the treatment planning software that we have in radiation oncology and radiotherapy, where it's basically an end result of your treatment planning process. And you have the treatment plan that is sent to the delivery unit and you have a device 
that is created and that can be either printed in-house or maybe outsourced. I will see about that. But as long as it's produced within the timing that we need to start the treatment in time for the patient, because in cancer it's really important to start in time, obviously, then all solutions uh, are possible. So one of the things that 3D printing in hospitals community is now a hot topic and also driven by the MDR is quality management of in-house produced devices. How do you look at that in this 3D printing scenario? And is this something that you feel you're confronted with already at the moment? Or is this more something we should take into account in the future? What's your experience with that? Well, we we have to discuss with industry how we, in a way, divide the work a little bit of this uh, quality management system. And there will be, okay, if I'm looking at it from a medical physics point of view, at some point we have to look at the aspects that are related to medical physics and whether the device is functional. Uh, You guys might look at the geometry of the device that you say, okay, we got a model and we create the device. Is it within the specs of the geometry that was delivered to us? That's one thing. But at the point that we get it into the hospital, uh, we should do some additional quality checks uh, that are related to the treatment plan and whether the device, in terms of interaction with radiation, it can be the the homogeneity of the device, is really uh, within specs to be able to be used uh, for treatment. But that's, yeah, that's on the discussion and that's on the development. I think the next coming years, we'll have to find solutions for that. You talked already about two of the barriers, maybe. So integration in in the clinical workflow and then probably quality and quality assurance uh, as two aspects of expanding the adoption of 3D printing. Are there other aspects that we should think of that are important, that are inhibiting you to do more 3D printing? Well, we we should definitely look into the cost as well. eh? So um, that's an important aspect. Now, 3D printing over the years, I've, I've been into that field for a few years so and I saw the prices go down uh, tremendously but okay we should take that into account as well uh, we have to build new solutions and uh, we, we have more possibilities now to maybe improve treatments and, and that's important that we go look for them for these opportunities to improve treatment uh, for the patients but the cost as well should be within the limits we can find additional functionality in these devices etc cetera, etc cetera, but still it's important that it's it remains more or less at the level of what we're doing today. That's an important aspect that we should take into account if we develop new solutions, uh, that's for sure. And previously you also mentioned the importance of clinical evidence and and that it should be evidence-based. Do you see their barriers as well, or is that more a matter of you know, time and just as more institutes are building up more cases? Well, there are some challenges and MDR has put <laughs> a big challenge in front of us because, okay, it's it's challenging and the discussions are ongoing, I think, everywhere. You have to develop these devices, use them in in a clinical study framework and improve their added value. And uh, there to use these devices, create these devices before they become like a product, uh, that's a challenge. And um, and we have to, with the new regulations that are in place, we have to find solutions because, okay, otherwise it's impossible to do this kind of research and to prove they have added value. We have to be able to do that and we have to find ways to do that. Uh, but within yeah, uh, the regulation framework, obviously. Mm-hmm. But so the, the challenge is maybe more, more so on the quality and patient safety side rather than on 
being able to do the, the experiments to get to what's the added value of using the 3D printed device, for example. Yeah, but it will be a, a step up. Yeah. I mean, we'll start with patient safety, obviously, and, and with limited studies and then build up towards a, a device that's really functional, that has the potential of, uh, for example, immobilization, um, immobilize uh, the patient properly and then do clinical studies with these devices. And, and that's, that should be possible in order to, to prove the added value. Maybe on another technology note, uh, so you mentioned already that AI is entering also your space. How do you see this impacting, I would say, the future of how treatment is being prepared for radiotherapy patients? Well, there's a lot of research uh, ongoing. It's not my my specialty, but uh, there's a lot of ongoing research. I mean, AI, I'm a bit, (laughs) personally, I'm a bit, well, I'm not skeptic towards AI. I think it's it's an interesting technology and it's it's already proven its worth. But I I do hope we we go beyond the hype and, and... and use it where it's really added value. Uh, maybe today it's it's used in, in a lot of applications where the added value is limited, but in some applications the added value is really, really obvious. And I do believe that it will change also a, a lot of things we do in radiation oncology. I mean, that's the way to go forward, and it will, will show up in a lot of uh, software packages and techniques that we use in the future. That's, that is obvious. There's no way around it. Tom, for a couple of times you mentioned the, the, this digital twin, eh, um, which is so important in doing a, a proper planning. How is this digital twin? Is it like a, I guess it's a it's it's a model of how a patient would behave. Is it something that you are developing yourself, or or are there like common models that the radiotherapy community is you know contributing to? How should I look at that? Well, I use digital twin because also in industry and manufacturing that is used. And actually, that's, it's the same, which means it's something digital that has the same features as the real patients. And okay, it's, it's a model, which means it's, it's only, it has only a limited amount of features, not all of them. But more and more, you'll see that this digital twin becomes, like already explained, becomes richer and richer. Motion is already in there and biology will be in there as well. Some other information that we have available, even genetic uh, information, will all come together into that digital model. And that will be used to de- design and develop treatment. It's a lot of the preparation, almost all of it does not involve the patient anymore it involves a digital model of the patient and even immobilization will be developed based on the digital twin while in the past we used the patient itself as a model we used the thermoplastic sheet now and that's a study we've already done that's possible which means that the immobilization device and the patient see each other the first time during the first fraction of treatment that's why i call a digital twin because it's how we do the preparation phase of the treatment Awesome. I think digital twin analogy, we've heard it uh, a few times already in this context. It's always being used in a different context, but I think this is a very tangible one to understand as well. A very interesting use case. Maybe looking beyond, we talked a lot about digitalization, uh, future applications of digital twin in radiation therapy and 3D printing and how it fits in there. I want to take it back maybe to... Um, what a lot of our audience is familiar with, which is the surgical side of treatment, probably also on the oncology side. Do you see the coexistence of the different treatments in cancer, radiation therapy and surgery, maybe as two primary ones? Do you see that change in the future as radiation therapy becomes more digital, uh, more advanced? For example, will it put additional demands uh, on surgical treatment afterwards? Do you see that dynamic change between these two? 
That's an interesting question. <laughs> well, there's always an interaction between the different uh, ways to treat cancer. Um, so um, uh, you have radiation oncology, you have even today, and now we're going a bit out of the, the scope, I believe. But anyway, you have surgery, you have uh, chemotherapy, you have immunotherapy. So you, you have a lot of ways to treat cancer and they interact uh, continuously. And okay, evolution or, or development in a certain, in, in one of these always impacts the others and the interaction with others. So there's always some dynamics. And how 3D printing then specifically might impact that? Okay, we're getting better and better at radiation therapy, more precise over the last 30, 40 years. We became really, really precise. So that has an impact, for example, on surgery. Yeah, these studies have been ongoing. It's not always easy to make these comparisons, but that will have uh, an impact. Yeah, but as I said, it's it's a continuous interaction, and evolutions within these uh, separate fields uh, have an impact on their dynamics. Everyone is driving the performance of that individual treatment forward. Uh, well, and there is some competition, which is always good. Exactly. <laughs> so, Tom, thanks so much for joining us and uh, sharing all those useful insights. Three key takeaways from our conversation are, well, first of all, that you know a personalized approach um, is already very much ingrained in your day-to-day activities within radiotherapy. So it, it seems like it's only a logical next step to venture into 3D printing, and, and that's where, secondly, I would say it's very insightful to see how there's already various applications of, of 3D printing that, that seem to be successful, um, where maybe brachytherapy and, and then the bowls are maybe the ones that we'll see uh, reach broad adoption the first. Then lastly, uh, my third takeaway is and probably the importance of the collaboration uh, between industry and uh, the hospitals uh, to really take it to a next step. Uh, and that one of the things we should work on is combining the 3D part in your clinical workflow and that actually the, the the design is part of the treatment plan, so it, it, it's something we can't separate. So, Tom, anything to add? No, I, I really liked your summary. Uh, can I use it? <laughs> um, no, well, thank you very much. Uh, it was a pleasure uh, to be here and uh, to discuss these things with you guys. We appreciate your sharing your insights with us on 3D Players, a podcast where we explore trends, insights and innovations in personalized and sustainable healthcare. We are your hosts, Peter Slagmolen and Sebastian de Boot. Thank you so much for listening and join us for the next edition. Mm-hmm.